Hi, everybody. Welcome back to Shibden After Dark. I'm Mary. I'm Leanne. And we are back with our second week focusing on Black queer lives. Last week we did Moonlight. We know that that film, we had a lot of people saying, you know, hey, why didn't you choose Pariah? Why didn't you choose, you know, these other women-focused, women-driven films? And the reason that we chose Moonlight, at least from my perspective, is Moonlight was groundbreaking. Mm -hmm. This film won Best Film. And it was written and directed by Black people. Mm -hmm. And it is a show that features a black queer story. And so I think that while there are many movies written and directed by black queer women that focus on black lesbian stories and black women's stories, this movie really, really shattered a ceiling that we wanted to focus on. Yeah. And I also think that especially what's going on in the world, talking about a, a movie that features a black male queer protagonist was really important for us to talk about because I think, not that we're man-hating lesbians, but I think a lot of the times our discussions are focused on the experience of going through life as women. And I think it's important for us to sometimes take a step outside of that box. I mean, I think that at some point we should talk about Pariah and we could talk about Angela Robinson's like entire filmography and how much work she has done. Well, we talked about Debs. That was yes, written we did. and directed by a black lesbian. But Angela Robinson has tons of great stuff, and we could also be talking about her. I mean, part of this project is that we're always going to have to pick and choose and kind of zigzag through all the things that we want to cover. But there's always going to be more stuff on the list. So do not get discouraged if our choices aren't necessarily lining up with what you may want to see. We have a really long list of stuff that at some point we hope to get to or, you know, but isn't that the beautiful thing, though? That the list is long. Yeah, the list like, is how long. How lucky are we to live in a time right now where the list is long? Mm -hmm. Because, I mean, 40, 50 years ago, there was no list. Right. Or the list was, you know, a couple of clips or scenes from a black and white film mm -hmm. that one could hope to intimate that there was some sort of queer activity occurring. So... We are very, very fortunate to live in a time where we get to pick and choose. And yeah. I'm just happy that you're all on this journey with us. Yep. Let's do Ann Lister's thermometer. Let's do some Ann Lister's thermometer. Okay. It all right. is... Oh, you go. No, you go. What was that? Was that a cat? <laughs> I don't know. I guarantee you someone stepped on a cat just then. There's there's 800 square feet, eight cats, and three fucking humans, oh, plus two dogs my God. in this home. <gasps> Is everything okay? Uh, the world is on fire right now. <laughs> Who knows what's happening? Oh, God. Okay. It's 77 degrees Fahrenheit here. That's 25 degrees Celsius. I'm so distracted. <laughs> There's cats screaming. Then I just hear the bathroom door open and somebody go, oh, my God. Shh. <laughs> <laughs> it's 81 degrees Fahrenheit here, which is 27 degrees Celsius. But it is raining every single day here because of summer in Florida. So the humidity is 80%. So it's time. It's time that I get to bring my contextual humidity into it. 80% humidity right now. Oh, man. Yeah, we're, it's, we just celebrated our one-year anniversary. 
Yes. It seems like ages ago when we were talking about how humid it was in Florida. Remember when that was like the big news in our lives? Yeah, it was. <laughs> when that was the number one thing I had to complain about was the humidity. Now I can complain about what the humidity is like while I'm wearing a mask. <laughs> oh, man. Yeah, so just last night, our board of county board of commissioners put in a mandate that all businesses must enforce a mask wearing, like you have to wear a mask when you're inside. And just to remind myself of the people that live in this area that I surround myself with, I just read the comments on that mandate mm-hmm. on our county Facebook page. Oof. <laughs> oh my God. It's painful sometimes. People honestly think that wearing a mask is the thing that the government wants to do to chain them and leash them. When you say people there, you mean white people. Oh, yeah, definitely (laughs) white people. Because people that are not white have been dealing with much bigger issues for their entire lives. And white people like to every single thing that is mandated it's like an affront to white people like white people think this is it this is how you're trying to step on my rights and it's like no dude no just no well and the thing that's so great about it is that there's so many white people that want small government and want to vote for small government and they want the government to stay out stay out of my business Mm -hmm. give me back my guns until They want their rights. So until they need the government to come protect their Confederate statues Mm -hmm. or come arrest Mm -hmm. the like black people that seem threatening in their neighborhood or whatever it is, or until they want to know where their government disbursement is for their inconveniences due to the coronavirus, one of which is wearing a mask. There's nothing else I can say really here that hasn't already been said. Everyone knows how I feel about it. Wear your fucking mask. We've been doing it the entire time, and now everything is going back up in flames in California because nobody else fucking did it. So Nope. And today, Florida reached an all-time high for coronavirus cases of 5,500 for today. And I'm sure it'll be another all-time high tomorrow. Yep. I have no question. Because we are not trending downward. We are trending upward. Wear your fucking masks. Oh, but very fortunately, if you cannot wear a mask, the Freedom to Breathe Association now has a card for you to carry, which states that they will be more than happy to sue any business trying to enforce you wearing a mask. So you can Google the Freedom to Breathe Association. Everybody, if you see an ACLU lawyer, I would tell you to give them a hug, but we can't do that right now. So just thank your neighborhood ACLU lawyers, everybody. Elbow bump (laughs) those motherfuckers. Yeah. All right. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, man. I had a hell of a time this morning announcing to my employees that they were going to have to put those masks on before they even came in the clinic. I mean, normally what we do, people come in, they get their mask out of their locker, put it on, clock in, whatever. But now it's like, listen, there's no lackadaisical anything anymore. Like, you can't even eat inside. You need to go outside, leave the building, etc. I mean, it's just... It's exhausting, though. You get to the point where, you know, you can't even take a five minute break inside anymore. And when you when you're dealing with like 110 degree heat index and humidity and things like that, like just even going outside to take a break doesn't feel like a break anymore. So it's just a next level of exhaustion. Yeah. No, I mean, I get it. It's super it is inconvenient and it sucks. But at the same time, if everybody doesn't I mean, we've been saying this for several months now, if everybody had done it in March 
we would be actually clearing up and be okay, like every other fucking country in the world, aside from a couple. But yeah. now it's going to be until, like, mark my words, this is going to be going on until December. The earliest I'm hearing that I'm going to return to work is January. So we have effectively fucked the rest of 2020. Yeah. Yeah. Great. Yeah. Thanks. Thank you, everyone. Yeah. Anyway, so I'm bitter. But Yeah. Mm. I think we're all a little bit bitter, though. Yeah. But I do want to go back to the the one year of doing this podcast, though, because that's something that hasn't been affected by the coronavirus, Mm -hmm. at least not very much. There have been a little bit of here and there times when we've had to take a break because we've had overwhelming amounts of work or, you know, whatever due to Corona, really. But ultimately, like, this is something that you and I still get to sit down and do every week, because we've been socially distancing since this started. Yeah, (laughs) at least with each other. Yeah. (laughs) So we hit our one year this week, since we posted our first episode, which has over 10,000, like maybe 12,000 at this point listens, which Mm -hmm. is pretty incredible. And you were going over some of the stats last night during our Zoom call, which still amazed me. We have over 200,000 streams, some total, on all of our 40 episodes, mm-hmm. which is mind-blowing. Yeah, it's yeah, incredible. Yeah, we have listeners in Kuwait, Sri Lanka, Thailand, Saudi Arabia, all, so many different places. Brazil, I mean, if you guys are listening, thank you for finding us. I'm glad that you found us, and I'm glad that you continue to listen And we love all of our listeners. Yeah. And I just want to thank everybody who participated in the anniversary shenanigans. Thank you to Livia and Steph for setting up anniversary shenanigans for us at all. Thank you to Tana for putting together this incredible video of so many of our listeners with their messages for our anniversary. You guys mean a lot to us and this whole community that has sprouted up around this podcast that has kind of given people a place to be themselves and to talk about their problems and to talk about their not problems Mm -hmm. and to just have something to come home to yeah, and to have each other has been the best outgrowth of this podcast that I could have ever hoped for. And I still, every time that, that something like this happens, go back to that moment on our very first phone call mm-hmm. ever, ever, where you and I both agreed that if during the course of this podcast, we were able to have one person feel less alone or feel like there were lesbians out there who grew up and were able to be themselves, then any amount of work we put into a podcast would be worth it. And to see that video yesterday made me realize that we've accomplished our goals and then some. Yeah. Absolutely. I mean, I I agree. I think one of the cool things for me is that we have seen different groups of listeners, not since COVID, obviously, everybody's still social distancing, who have found each other and started to have relationships with each other that are in the same country or in the same city. And, And I think that that's so cool that other people have found each other and found people that are different than them that they might not have gotten to know that they definitely wouldn't have gotten to know otherwise but now have shared a love of Gentleman Jack and are brought together by the podcast and have made really good friends that they're going to keep for a long time and some even relationships. So I think that part of this is it, it's strange to have something kind of grow beyond you, beyond you and I, I guess, but it's really cool to know that there are people out there that have made friends because of us. Like that's something super special and that I really love. So 
props yeah. to everybody. It's exciting to know that it has grown grown beyond us and that it is more than us. <laughs> yeah. So thanks to everyone who was involved ultimately for that because it made us feel super fucking incredible. And I'm just, again, ultimately so grateful to be a part of this at all. Yeah. I concur. <laughs> Speaking of being a part of this community, the thing that we're talking about this week is not a movie. I mean, it sort of is. It's a documentary called The Death and Life of Marsha P. Johnson. Marsha P. Johnson. God, I can't mm-hmm. talk. I get to the end of the day and it's just all gone from yeah. me. <laughs> but it's not necessarily just that documentary. We're talking about her as a person. We're talking about the movement that she and the people around her started, Mm -hmm. which led us to be able to do what we're doing today, ultimately. And she was a black trans woman. And another woman around her that I was alerted to by our group and by Twitter when we were uh, when we initially posted that we were going to be doing this Mm -hmm. was Stormy Delabier. So we're going to talk about the two of them. Queer as Fact has done some really good podcasts on them. There's a lot of really good information online about both of them. So read up. There was a little bit of controversy about the documentary The Death and Life of Martha P. Johnson that uh, there was a cis white man who potentially stole it, stole the work from a transgendered woman who had been compiling it to create a documentary on it. However, I don't know whether or not that's true. Again, there's a lot of controversy surrounding it, but the story within the documentary is still important and there's a lot of interesting information within the documentary. Mm-hmm. So I would still encourage you to at least watch it. Watch it with and the knowledge that yeah, that yeah. Yeah. That may or may not be the case. Right. But either way I would encourage you to listen to the Queerest Fact podcasts on both Marsha and Stormy mm-hmm. because they're very, very interesting. And another show that I want to plug here because I have really enjoyed it is Pose. Have you seen it? No, but I fucking love Billy Porter. And I didn't realize until afterwards that they had shot for a while on the lot and I should have gone and scoped it out. But um, no, I haven't seen it, but I really want to because I heard it's amazing. I also really want to see Cheer. Have you heard about Cheer? Yes. So those two are on my Netflix list. Okay, good. So post season one, I have seen season two have not seen yet, but both season one and season two are on Netflix. So Pose is about black drag and trans culture in New York City in the 80s. I want to say it's the 80s. It might be the late 70s, early 80s. It's fantastic. It's about drag balls. It's about houses. It's about all of these fantastic, incredible, strong women. It's about queer people taking care of themselves and taking care of each other. Mm -hmm. And it is unreal. It's just such, so good. So good. I I can't recommend it enough. And also a very heavily black driven community. So these were black women that were thrown out of their homes that had to pick themselves up and pick up the black women around them who had to keep those women from falling into homelessness, into drug abuse, into prostitution, Mm -hmm. had to teach them how to make their own way. And had to support each other and lift one another up and create a community. Mm -hmm. So it's pretty incredible to see that. Yeah. 
But let's talk about Stormy first. And then we'll get on to Marsha. Okay. Stormy was kind of a self-professed butch lesbian. She didn't talk very much about her own sexuality or personal life. Mm -hmm. But when she did, she did refer to herself as a woman. A woman. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. She was the daughter of a black mother and a white father in New Orleans, which was super dangerous. And she got her ass kicked all the time for it. Well, when she was born, her parents, I mean, her her parents got married later on in California, if I recall. But she, at the time, her existence was illegal because the relationships between black people and white people were illegal physical sexual relationships obviously illegal and so she doesn't even have a we don't even have a record of her birth no to know whether this was her name when she was born or anything like that i mean like that kind of existence can't i can't even imagine what that is like yeah for your very existence to be illegal Mm -hmm. and it's something that you can't hide because she was biracial right and yeah it doesn't matter if you're technically you know half and half but in this country, if you're half black, that makes you black, right? Because, right, exactly. Yeah, so anyway. Yeah. And to grow up in a place and in a time where you're told your very existence makes you an illegal person, your very skin, who you who you are and cannot change. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's just how that shapes you, I can't even imagine. Right. But they did, her family did eventually move to California. Her mother and father were married and she ended up, being a jazz singer for 15 years, being a performer. She was a drag king, what we now know as a drag king. Mm-hmm. She dressed as a man on stage and performed as a man on stage. And she had a really deep voice, so she could pull that off. And she performed, ended up performing with a troupe, ended up moving back to New York and performing with a troupe at a place called the Jewel Box, mm-hmm. which is the most heavy-handed vagina reference I've ever heard. I know, I love it. It and- was... Well, so their whole shtick was that it was 25 men and a girl, and the audience would then try to figure out which one was the girl. And I guess the gimmick was that she was the MC, so she was wearing men's clothes and would put on a mustache, but essentially Mm -hmm. was just herself. And the trick was that the audience would see all these men dressed as women. Wait, I'm confusing myself here, right? Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, no, yeah. you're not. Yeah, the so, audience would see all the men dressed as women and wouldn't even think to look at the her. MC, right? And so it turned out that she was the one who was a woman, even though right. she was dressed as a man. Exactly. So it was kind of a bit of a twist of irony because mm-hmm. everybody was coming there prepared for one of the women, women mm-hmm. who were actually all men dressed as women, to be the. And it's kind of sad in its own way because to be the quote unquote, not real, but the gender woman, Mm -hmm. the gender woman. I don't even know how to phrase that, right? Well, I want to point out that the Queer is Fact podcast, which we listen to, points out that some of the men who were dressed as drag, who were drag queens, some of them might have also been trans women. So it was kind of unfair, but... But what was fair in the 50s when she was performing with well, the Jewel Box? nothing. Yes. Nothing. It was all like, and I was watching this documentary on Netflix also. I mean, Netflix is a hotspot right now mm-hmm. about trans people. Oh, it's like, what is it called? It's deconstructed or 
It has Laverne Cox in it mm-hmm. and a bunch of other really famous trans actors as well. Oh, and this is on my Netflix list. Yes. Yes. <laughs> I Ooh. will find it. Oh, <laughs> uh, yes. So anyways, I was watching that just because I was interested in it and it had nothing to do with this subject at all. But um, it in it, one of the trans... Disclosure, yes. In it, one of the trans actors says, we know when you're laughing at us and when you're laughing with us. And it makes a huge difference. Mm -hmm. And I feel as if this whole construction with the jewel box is definitely a you're laughing at us situation. So it's just constructed to make all of these people be a joke. But what else are they supposed to do? What else do you do if you're trans in the 50s? Do you hide completely and not not do anything? Or do you put yourself in a situation where you have the chance to at least in some way live your gender, your true gender identity in any way? I mean, I can't even begin to know, again, because I'm not trans, but what do you do? I don't know. I mean, it's interesting because from what we know about her, she got arrested. Was she arrested for looking like a man? Yes. Because she started wearing men's clothes outside of her performances. So she started wearing men's clothes and dressing like a man and acting like a man outside of the performances at the Jewel Box. Mm -hmm. I think it's really interesting because we see sometimes with people in our group and even in our own lives. Well, I remember this when I was a kid. I did a, um, I was probably seven or eight, we were doing presidents and famous speeches at school and I got to be JFK. And so I learned my JFK speech and I, I, the ask not what you can do for your country one. Yeah. And I got to wear one of my dad's blazers and a tie. And I remember I practiced for like a week and dressed up the whole time, of course, because I had never felt what it was like to wear men's clothes. And of course they were giant on me and super baggy and whatever, but there was something, I mean, obviously it's been like 30 years and I remember this, (laughs) something about putting on those clothes and feeling empowered in a way And I could just imagine this person who we know at some point, because didn't she, I think they talk about it in the podcast that she says that at some point it just occurred to her, like she had always felt different, but then one day she was like, aha, you know? Yeah. And I'm queer. Yeah, I'm queer. Because they didn't even have a word for being gay or lesbian back then. It was just, I'm queer. And that thing where you put on the clothes and it's like a, aha, you know, and you can't even... Maybe not even at the time can you identify it or articulate what it is that you're feeling, but something about it you remember. And so I can just Mm -hmm. imagine her putting on the men's clothes and then just as a performer on stage and then just never taking him off, you know? Yeah. Like, that's so relatable. Yeah. At some point, you're just like, I can't go back to the way that it was anymore. Mm -hmm. And I think that it would have to be even harder being trans to try to take off the things that make you feel most in your skin Mm -hmm. and put on something else. Right. And there was another, another quote. And I think that this was also from the Queer's Fact podcast where they, they said masculinity is something that is constructed and performed, which is incredible because I hadn't really thought of our genders as things that we construct and perform but it is so true that they are that gender is something that we just it's a show that we put on every day right so you have to you know put on you know the bra that shows off your boobs the best or you put on your makeup to show off your best features and certainly you know makeup and all those things are things that we can use because we like them or because we like the way they make us look but 
not because they express our gender necessarily. Well, it's also because of how you want to be perceived and whether or not you want to fit in or not fit in. I mean, Mm -hmm. that's something that they talk about too, which is this idea that even the pronouns that we use. So Stormy said that she was a woman, but when asked whether she wanted to be referred to with male or female pronouns, she said, whatever you want, whatever makes you more comfortable. And I love that because it puts the onus back on the other people. We use, I guess when you're younger, you just think of, you just use pronouns to identify people. But once you start thinking about this relationship that we have with words and with feminine and masculine words, and even in countries or languages that assign gender to different words that don't have a gender, like the beach or a book, you know, it does something to them. And so the idea of using a pronoun not because I care, like I don't care, but whatever you are going to do to make you feel more comfortable interacting with me, it's just such a yeah. unique way to think about pronouns. I don't know. Yeah. That, I got to spend some more time processing that part. Right. There's so much about Stormy that was ahead of her time that I can't even begin to wrap my mind around that I have to think about. She had to overcome so much more than just race And race was such a huge part of her life. And she ended up being one of the earliest, if not the earliest, influencer on gender nonconforming dressing Mm -hmm. in terms of fashion and in terms of fashion photography, things like that. There are so many beautiful pictures of her, if you look them up, beautiful pictures of her in black and white, in a suit and all that kind of stuff. And, And she's just incredibly good looking, but very androgynous. I mean, it it kind of reminds me of David Mm Bowie-esque almost. She just presents this very striking figure. Mm -hmm. So let's talk about why we're talking about her in this context. In this context, Yeah. yeah. So she gets to the point in her life where she isn't necessarily performing anymore, but she's part of the gay liberation movement in New York City in the 80s. Mm-hmm. And she is actually working, I believe she was working at Stonewall as a bouncer. And she was doing a lot of being a bouncer, essentially, throughout New York, but inside of the gay community, specifically in the Stonewall area in New York, she actually held a gun permit. And she patrolled the streets as a butch lesbian, protecting all the little baby lesbians so they could get from their point A to point B safely. I love this so much. Yeah. So she went from being this fashion icon, drag king performer to just being this butch lesbian, packing a gun, protecting her baby lesbians so they could go experience their young lesbian life Mm -hmm. safely inside the gay community in New York surrounding the time that Stonewall was happening. She was actually attributed, kind of self-attributed, and but also attributed by the people that surrounded her with throwing the first punch at Stonewall. Mm-hmm. So there was a, a lot for a long time, there was an unidentified lesbian that threw the first punch at Stonewall. And then later she took credit for it. And then people that were there and surrounding her also attributed it to her. Well, I love this story. And I this part, I think we got off of Wikipedia, but it said something about how they had been putting her in handcuffs to arrest her, the police, and she kept escaping. And finally, as she's being dragged away, she shouts at all the other lesbians around her, why won't y'all do something? Why don't you guys do something? 
that's when she threw the first punch. And so there's this kind of debate whether or not it was really her, but it's pretty unanimous that she was definitely there, one of the ones fighting back, if not the first, then one of the very first. So yeah, fucking. So awesome. basically, one of our founding lesbian mothers. I love this so much. And there is something so unique about I mean, obviously, for you and I going to gay bars in our 20s, it was not the same. I mean, when I first started going to the gayborhood in Dallas, there were people holding up Bibles on the street, and we got a lot of shit talk, but we were not getting dragged out and arrested, right? It's not the no. same in that respect. But I think this is so unique to the queer community that these bars, the Stonewall Inn, it was a fucking refuge for people. And I think I don't remember if I've talked about it on the podcast before, but I heard this I read this story one time in this anthology about this woman who was getting basically just brutalized every weekend when she went to this gay bar in her neighborhood and the interviewer was asking her why did you keep going and because the 100 yards from the car to the bar was the most violent time and place in her whole life but she kept going every week and it was like once I got in the door I felt home it was worth everything on the outside to be in there with people like me. And that is so, regardless of the circumstances, I think that's still so relatable to the queer community. And so these, oh, absolutely. these women who came before us, who were literally using their hands as weapons against the police to protect the baby gays and the little dykes in there, like it's fucking incredible. And the fact that we don't even have like huge pieces of her story or Marsha's story because for whatever, re you know, black trans or woman, you're just, we do not get, they do not get the same police yeah, resources, anything. No, we're going to talk about this in a minute when we get to Marsha. Oh yeah. The it's yeah. Completely wild yeah. to me how close we are to that because it was, 70 years ago mm -hmm. that this was happening, that police were able to walk into a bar and arrest people who wore clothes that didn't align with their gender. Mm -hmm. Just walk right in and arrest them, men, women, whatever. And ultimately that's what led to Stonewall mm -hmm. is people were sick and tired of being harassed for being in a private place and just living their lives. They weren't bothering anybody. They were doing anything wrong. They were just, sick to fucking death of being harassed. And I think that ultimately, that's all anybody wants. They just want to be able to go about their lives peacefully mm -hmm. and not be harassed for it. Yeah, It's not breaking the law to exist. No. And any law that's created that punishes someone for their very existence doesn't need to be in place. I concur again. <laughs> what, you don't have an argument for that one? <laughs> Let's talk about the Marsha... P. Johnson, The Death and Life of Mar Marsha P. Johnson. I want to yeah. start out by saying that I am gl really glad that I watched this. I think it had a lot of really good information, and I'm so glad that I got to see Marsha and hear her voice and yes. get to know her. I liked that. I wish that this documentary had focused less on her death because I think it, on purpose, you know, kind of comes across as a journey for justice and to bring her murder to light and to make progress on that front. But I wish that it had focused a little bit more on her life and less so on trying to find her killers because 
this is also my white privilege showing because I can say, oh, I wish that it had focused more on her life when in reality, this is how black people are going through the world. You don't get to focus on life because at any time you could get fucking brutalized and murdered in the street, thrown into the Hudson. Yeah. So I have a lot of mixed feelings about this. Yeah. And I think this documentary was trying to make a bigger statement, at least in my eyes, about the fact that we look back into the 1990s and we have black trans women being killed or being, and, and, and ultimately the documentary comes to the conclusion that it's probable that she wasn't necessarily beaten up and thrown into the river, but maybe chased into the river or maybe picked up and thrown into the river or something like that. But we have black trans women being sketchily disposed of mm-hmm. back in the 1990s and nothing is being done about it and it's being ruled a suicide even though everybody around her said there was no reason that she would have committed suicide and she had no signs of mental illness or suicidal intentions and then we come into the modern day and we have this case that they highlight during the documentary the nettles case Yeah, the Nettles case, Mm -hmm. where a black trans woman is at a bar and gets picked up to, you know, do what anybody does at a bar, go home and get laid. And a normal human interaction that any human being has and has has done in the past. And the person who she goes home with decides that either they found out that she had a penis or they decided that even though they may have known it when they picked her up, that they decided that when they got her home, that that wasn't what they wanted, or they may have been embarrassed by their friends finding out or whatever. So they killed her. And then this focuses on the case of the the Nettles case Mm -hmm. and the fact that at the end of it, the guy who kills her gets 12 years in prison. Mm -hmm. And what shocks me is that at the sentencing hearing, the attorney reads a letter from the family that basically says, you know, we have lost this person who meant so much to us. We've lost this person that we loved that has been, you know, that had a future ahead of them that had such a bright spot and had such a bright future and was an incredible influence on our lives. The attorney reads that letter and the judge says, cool, this guy can have 12 years for murder because of the panic defense. Mm -hmm. Right? So, your dick scared me so much that I stabbed you to death. Mm -hmm. I'm sorry. That's bullshit. Yeah. Absolute bullshit. And the fact that it's still happening today should petrify our entire community. Mm -hmm. Because it is not a far cry for it to reach out to any one of us. Yeah. I have so many thoughts running through my head. I don't even know where where to start. I find it sickening and frustrating. This documentary was really heartbreaking for so many reasons. But the one, I'm going to skip right into the middle. The one that really strikes me the most is when Sylvia Rivera is basically shouting at Pride to the rest of the queer community and is getting booed. Oh my fucking God, I know. And that floored me because... You know, they're, trans people are the T, right? Mm-hmm. LGBT. And the T gets so often overlooked or lumped in when 
Or stuck in the back. Or stuck in the back when there are so many issues that we need to be working together to fight on. The bathrooms, everything. I mean, the fact that trans women are getting murdered, killed, and they're, I mean, like, look at the way that the police handled it in this case. She, Victoria couldn't even get them on the phone to answer any questions. And there's no recourse for that. We're still talking about police reform in this country right now, and nobody can get anywhere. It's, I shouldn't say that, we are making progress incrementally. But this, again, even when we're looking at a documentary about Marsha P. Johnson, this woman, it's like I wanted this mo- I wanted this documentary to be the movie Pride, right? right? You've seen the movie Pride where everybody, all the coal miners come to the realization that these people, we should be fighting for them and we love them and they're, love- they're worthy of love and all of this. And in reality, that's just not the case. And it was especially rough to see that happening at Pride, which is supposed to be, well, back then it wasn't what it is now, which is a, supposed to be a celebration, you know? And yeah. so, I mean, let's start at the beginning, but yeah, the, yeah. we've got and a I, lot of fucking work to do. I want to say the scene where Sylvia is at Pride getting booed and she's, she starts out so strong and she just starts yelling gay power mm-hmm. to a crowd of gay and lesbian people. Mm-hmm. And she just ends it with just, she's sobbing quietly into the mic, gay power, because they're still booing her. It is absolutely heartbreaking to me. Because ultimately, I mean, the idea that we would ever turn on one of our own, out of question. Mm-hmm. So there's such an important juxtaposition in this movie that we are still in the exact same place that we were 30 years ago when this happened to Marsha P. Yeah, because look at what happened. So we find out that she was killed. There's a question that kind of goes through the film. Who, who was the last person to, to see her? Because they know right. that she died over a couple day period, but they're still trying to figure out exactly when. I mean, and the first thing that you really see is the her community puts up a makeshift monument to her in the place where after she was pulled out of the river they laid her body on the ground and i mean it's it's george floyd it's every it's rayshard brooks it's everybody that is still happening right now you know it's watching this is overwhelming yep and the anger of the people surrounding her yeah oh my god just screaming at the cops, demanding justice, demanding an investigation. And the cops just coolly disinterested in any sort of action or retribution or even seeming to care. Mm-hmm. I mean, the, the police captain who's standing there talking to them basically just says, well, I'm not going to be able to solve anything for you today. Mm-hmm. Oh, my God. Not even, you know, I take this seriously. I understand this is a member of your community. We're going to look into it with just as much importance as we would any other member of this community. No, just I can't solve you any problems for you today. Mm-hmm. So I don't even know what you're trying to gain by being out here. I mean, it's just all of it. All, all of it yeah. is so... I really liked getting to see Marsha's family talk about her and... Mm-hmm 
the way that they, so we talked about pronouns a little bit earlier on the ease with which they switch pronouns back and forth between Marsha and Malcolm between he and her or he and she or his and her was so striking to me because her brother and sister are literally using phrases like the last time I saw her was when I dropped him off at the train station. They switch even within sentences and it was so casual and so like something that you wouldn't even notice, you know, like it didn't even matter what the pronoun was. Exactly. And, and I thought that that was so cool to see. And that's sort of, um, I mean, I think that Marsha, we're using her pronouns and we've referred to her as trans. From the footage in the documentary, her and Sylvia and some others started the street transvestites action revolutionaries. So at the t- yes. they called themselves transvestites. Yes. So I just want to be clear on the nomenclature at the time. Yes. And Sylvia refers to Marsha as her. Mm-hmm. And Sylvia was her best friend, her roommate. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, as far as we can tell, based on the information that we have, and I've also done some additional, you know, online research, and I'm sure you have too. Mm-hmm. I mean, it, she is trans. Yeah. I, I liked the use of Marsha and Sylvia as the kind of yin and yang you know, yeah. of like the the Malcolm X and the MLK kind of dichotomy because yeah. Marsha had that such a sweet disposition and everybody was darling and baby, you know, and oh yeah, and and doll, uh huh, and Sylvia was angry, seen, was more angry and more in your face, and you put a good what you put a good quote in the outline. There was a moment where Marsha basically said, I'm going to stay on welfare until the government gives me the rights that I deserve, Mm -hmm. which I like, fuck yeah. Until you're seen as an equal in the government's eyes, why would you Mm -hmm. not take the one thing that the government will give you? Mm -hmm. They won't give you anything else. Why not take the one thing that they'll give you? Right. I loved that. I absolutely loved that. Yeah. And Marsha P pay it. No mind. That's your problem. Not mine. Yep. Like, to live with that mentality, pay it no mind, it's your problem, not mine. These people were ridiculously strong people to go through life with that kind of mentality just to brush your shoulders off. Oh, you have constantly. to, though. No, I know. It's just, it's, it's given the circumstances and everything that they were facing, I just think it's remarkable. It's so remarkable. And Marsha and Sylvia created an entire home for Mm -hmm. homeless gay and lesbian and transsexual people in New York. A whole home. home. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the star home. They created it, which insane. It blows my mind. I mean, just Marsha standing up in front of a microphone and saying, darling, I want my gay rights now. I mean, she's beyond iconic Mm -hmm. i mean just the way she carries herself the way she acts the way she talks you just want to hear more from her you want Mm -hmm. to follow her Mm -hmm. and someone like that is dangerous to people who don't believe what she believes because someone like that is is inspiring 
it sh- they make people want to follow them because pay it no mind, just keep moving forward. It's not about the little things. It's about the big picture, stuff like that. And then with her, you have Sylvia, mm-hmm. who can also incite the riots and get the people who need action organized and going. Mm-hmm. And I mean, just the two of them together are such a powerful and dynamic team. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean... The way that her friends and other people talked about Marsha, I mean, obviously the way that her family talked about her, but what's his name? Randy, the roommate, and yeah. and Sylvia. When you first meet Sylvia, she talks about how Marsha was like a mother to her, and they they took care of each other. This is queer family because Marsha's family obviously was there, but a lot of the queer community, especially at that time didn't have family that they could turn to. So they had to take care of each other because nobody else was looking out for them, you know? And, and isn't that just queer culture as a whole though? Mm -hmm. There's no one ultimately for many of us, there's no one looking out for us, but each other. Mm -hmm. And if we don't have each other's backs unconditionally, then for many of us, there's no family to fall back on. There's no, and I'm not talking in terms of like money or whatever, but just, Support. emotional support yeah just emotional support having someone to reach out to being able to just say hey i need to talk about this or i need advice i need help and that community that queer community that closeness it's something that you only get with people who have been rejected from everybody else in their lives yeah I think it's also interesting this reminds me of the fact that last week when the supreme court ruled on the discrimination case, both of the plaintiffs in that case had since died, had died before the Supreme Court opinion came down. You have a scenario here where the people that are inspiring and inciting change do not live to see the results of it. These people who do all of this work to inspire so many people don't even get to reap the benefits of it in a yeah. lot of in a lot of cases. They lose the fruits of their labor. Mm-hmm. Well, and you see, after Marsha died, it cuts to Sylvia later on in a documentary, and she's homeless. She's yeah. living right by the river. And she's living in an area that's about to be gentrified, and they're about to destroy the home that she's built from literal scraps. Mm-hmm. And she just says, they call it a sweep, like we're trash. Mm-hmm. And you look at everything that she's done in her life, everything that she's built, the people that whose lives she has literally saved, the things that she's changed and done and everything she's fought for, and a person who's not trash, and she's being pushed out as if she is. And it's so upsetting. It's such upsetting imagery to see that. Yeah. Another thing that's like a through line during this movie is the fact that Marsha's friends have to kind of do their own investigating. I mean, Victoria, who is the one who's running the um, investigation from the anti-violence project, is doing her own investigation, right? But she is talking to Marsha's friends. And we get one of Marsha's friends who, right after Marsha had died, did her own ride-along and did her own investigation 
with oh that's the person whose name was randy um yeah did her own investigation with randy and she was talking about how she was the last one alive out of all the street girls that she started with most of them were lost to drug overdoses or suicide or murdered by johns or murdered by pimps and a lot of them disappeared like marcia did yeah the fact that you have Marsha's friends, community members, having to do their own investigations because the police won't do it, just tells you what kind of stuff that they were up against. And this is like, I mean, we're seeing a little bit of movement on police reform right now because everybody's pissed off enough to do something. But how many millions of people is it taking for that to happen? Millions. Millions. No, I know. And think about all the people in the meantime, all these cold cases nothing and the police are not being held accountable yep i know and still to this day the most threatened member of our community is the black trans woman still to this day that's not okay nothing has changed nothing has changed and not only outside of our community but inside of our community systemic racism is pervasive And it needs to be rooted out and destroyed. The fact that we can say that not only is a specific subset of our community more likely to be murdered, but a specific race of that subset is more likely to be murdered is absolutely horrifying to me. Just the phrase more likely to be murdered is fucking insane. Yes. And to me... The whole message of all of this to me goes back to Sylvia on that stage, standing there, getting booed and jeered by members of her very own community, when there is, it is absolute lunacy that there would ever be infighting within our own community, because it only serves to tear us down, because the only time that we lose is when we destroy ourselves from within everybody outside of our community that is fighting against us wins when we tear ourselves down from within when we fight against each other this is interesting and i want to bring up something related but not entirely on topic which we haven't yet talked about on the podcast and we probably should which is the fact that as much as i hate to say it joe rowling is a fucking turf and i think that I have been proud in the last couple of weeks. I saw an interesting tweet the other day that said, wow, America's divorce is getting really weird. The right got Harry Potter and the left got NASCAR. But yeah. it's fucking true because yep, it is fucking you true. had NASCAR this week who has a black driver, Bubba Wallace, the only black driver in this NASCAR. I don't know anything about NASCAR. His team found a noose in the garage and NASCAR went right to bat for him and was like, this is fucked up, called the FBI. The FBI did an investigation. They have since found out that it was not a hate crime, which is a good result. But obviously there's still a noose there. So why are people nodding noose knots in this day and age? I don't know. But what NASCAR did was have, I mean, have you seen the clips of this? The entire, every other driver got out before the the race that they Mm -hmm. had last week. Every fucking garage guy and the people on the team who do the wheels and all those things that I don't know what they're called. Every single other fucking person in NASCAR for all the other drivers and all the other teams got out and walked beside his car as he drove a lap. And... That is what NASCAR did because they were like, if we found out there was a hate crime, you will be banned for life. This is unacceptable. 
Yeah. And we have J.K. Rowling, who's making all these statements about her beliefs and all this stuff. Oh, yeah. That letter that J.K. Rowling wrote was fucking disgusting. Yeah. And it is every single excuse that I've ever heard from every goddamn redneck as to why trans women should not be allowed to use the bathroom. Yeah. Because if you allow one trans woman into the bathroom, then that opens the door for sexual predators. And I was molested so that I should be able to mm-hmm. make these mm-hmm. statements. And I have mm-hmm. a right and I have a leg to stand on. No, you fucking don't have a leg to stand no. on. You have no leg to stand on to say that your sexual assault can and impose a rule against a group of people who are women mm-hmm. it just blows my fucking mind trans women do not degrade genetically born women they are women just like we are mm-hmm. and they do not tear down feminism they do not tear down feminist constructs and they are just as much a part of our female community as every what person born with a vagina yeah yeah no, like I, I mean period i know end, end of conversation and anybody who disagrees with that statement doesn't ever have to listen to our podcast again and can leave our community yeah period <laughs> like and that's just the end of it yeah. and same goes for female to male transitioned people yeah as well so so i just wanted to say that i think that i was really pleased that so many you had Dan Radcliffe and Emma Watson and people who literally made their entire lives and careers out of something that she had created and were saying, no, that is wrong. Yeah. And we are saying no, because we do not want to be associated with that. And you know me, I love Harry Potter. And I don't think that that has to change my love of Harry Potter for me to acknowledge that JK Rowling is a fucking turf and I don't want to put her on my list of people that I want to meet and have dinner with or whatever anymore. Like that is fuck no. And her litter, like a bunch of other authors at her literary agency were like, no, y'all need to cut her loose and all this stuff. And so I know that it's not enough and we still have work to do. I know people have been saying she's a turf for a long time and that's fair. But when it kind of first started to gain steam, I know there were a lot of people myself included, who was kind of giving her the benefit of the doubt. And it's like, no, once you've made a statement like that, you're done. Once you've basically written a letter that says I'm a turf a hundred times. We don't have to sugarcoat it anymore because it's a no tolerance policy. I'm just fucking done sugarcoating it. I'm done sugarcoating racism. I'm done sugarcoating transism. Mm -hmm. I don't even know what you call it. I'm done sugarcoating all of it. Like I'm done tolerating it. It's not okay it's not okay on my transphobia transphobia (laughs) transphobic i'm so angry i don't even know what it is even the words anymore i'm done tolerating phobias and isms and bullshit like that we already live in a time that is so full of stress and hate as it is the time for civil conversation has passed Mm -hmm. i'm done with it if you can't grow up and grow out then get out yeah If you are more concerned with a monument in your town than people who are being killed, then you need to check your priorities. You need to check your privilege. Yeah, check your privilege. People are all concerned about the line drawing and where does it end, but I know where it starts. And it starts with taking care of each other more than taking care of monuments. And the Confederacy only lasted five years. Like, grow up. Game of Thrones lasted longer. We don't have monuments to Game of Thrones. We could. We could replace all of those all of those monuments with just different Game of Thrones characters and different Game of Thrones like dragons (laughs) and maybe a couple different wolves. I'd be down with that. 
Yeah, or like Harriet Tubman, or any like I mean, this is so. I think we've made our message pretty fucking clear. We have gotten off topic, but this is all on topic. It's kind of. I was going to say all of this is pretty on topic. I think that we have fully explained (laughs) ourselves (laughs) in a very angry and red faced kind of way. Okay, let's circle back for a second. And I do want to say that I loved that Sylvia Rivera no longer homeless. She moves no. to Westchester and lives mm-hmm. in the suburbs. And I love that her attitude after this part is that, what does she say about herself? She says that she loves being the campy queer in the suburbs. And that in her own way, she's now kind of like, she's absolutely changing people's lives. I remember when I was a young gay person. And when I turned 21, I went to the gay bars all the time in Dallas. And it was such a fun being young and finally being able to go to the, I mean, it was just one block, the neighborhood, and there were like five bars. But that time in my life was so exciting. And it was such a community. And I have all these friends and we knew all the drag queens and we'd go every Thursday night to JR's and we'd go see the drag shows. And there was something so welcoming to me about the drag community just being so accepting yeah drag has a place forever in our world and if you don't know or believe that i would like to plug we're here which if you have not watched it on hbo it's got bob the drag queen who i know from rupaul's drag race and it has two other drag queens on it and they literally travel to tiny towns in the South and also in kind of the Midwest area and walk around in the most insane and elaborate drag you've ever seen to advertise their drag show. And then they take three people from these towns and put them in drag. Those These people are queer. They're straight. They're women. They're men. They stick them in drag and they perform a drag show with them. And it is one of the most unifying and beautiful and crazy things you've ever seen. I mean, these people, they go to Biloxi, Missouri, oh, which is, goodness. yeah. So we're here. Watch it on HBO. It is everything that your queer heart needs to make you feel good about yourself okay, and about your community. I got to put that one on my list too. Do it. So let's end it on that note. Go see we're here. It will make you feel better about all the things that are happening. Leanne and I are going to take a couple weeks off. Yeah, I was just going to apologize for being all over the map today. <laughs> We've got a lot of feeling. I feel like we don't have anything to apologize for. Yeah. I hope that you guys enjoyed this roller coaster ride and mm-hmm. then it felt as good for you as it felt for us. No, agree. Okay, continue. All right. So Leanne and I are going to take a couple weeks off. So we're going to be gone for two weeks this time. Leanne is actually moving mm-hmm. into a brand new fancy domicile. So she's going to be a little bit, have her hands full with that. And I've got a couple big work things that I'm taking on. So it's time for us to take a little little break from all this recording and focus on that. And then we'll be back in a couple weeks. Yep. Nothing big, just down the street, but more space. So yeah, yeah. And we still got to pack everything up. Oh, it's the worst. And in-town moves are awful because you always feel like, I'll just make a quick run up the street with one load of things. Yeah. And next thing you know, you're like... Yeah, you, you've make, made a thousand tiny runs. It's like eating a salad. You know mm-hmm. how you eat a salad and you eat and eat and eat and then there's still a shit ton of salad left? That's what moving in town is like. <laughs> you move and move and move and move, but there's still there's like still you moved more. nothing. Oh my God, yeah. There's so much shit. Yeah, anyway. Uh-huh. So, but uh-huh. we will be back in the future. Yes, we will be. 
And we will keep you guys posted on Facebook, Twitter, etc. as to uh, when that will be and what it will be. In the meantime, stay safe, take care of yourselves. Keep an open mind and an open heart. And love one another. And don't be a turf. <laughs> don't be a turf. <laughs> Bye. Bye.